I ran across these stats of the evaporation rate on Lake Mead, yeah. and it blew my mind. Lake Mead and Lake Powell together, it's something like a million acre feet a year. It, it will lose six-tenths of an inch a day just by natural evaporation. Yeah, 25,000 right. gallons a second. What? Yeah, that's where that's Huge. that's not damn. even damn girl. <laughs> this is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome Infrastructure Junkies to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Hey, Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. Hello, Kristen. How you doing? Best day of my life. How about you? I'm so excited because we have a very mm-hmm. interesting episode today. We have an influencer on our show today. Really? <laughs> yes, we do. And you know how we're influencers? You know, we have a TikTok and we're influencers. And what? We, yeah. Like, no. Yeah, the Infrastructure Junkies TikTok. We've got videos and stuff. We're influencers. But anyway. Kristen, we have 52 followers. Okay. Well, doesn't I, make us influencers. Everybody has to start somewhere. Well, we're starting at the bottom, aren't we? That's right. Well, anyway, as an influencer, we tend to rub elbows with other influencers. And so we met this guy who's also an influencer. And he knows kind of a lot about something that's very interesting to me. You want to introduce him? Yeah, his name is Adam Ratliff, and for the last several years, he's created a web series about his love of civil engineering, transportation infrastructure, and anything related to hydropower. Along the way, he's found thousands of others to share his passion and take the time to engage with his content. His goal is simple. Bring fact-based educational content on an often overlooked subject matter. He wants to help illuminate the big picture of how our built environment works by highlighting the fascinating details. And he is truly an infrastructure junkie. He is. And he's also on TikTok as the armchair engineer. You should definitely check that out. All right. So what's the armchair engineer going to teach us about today? Well, he is here to talk to us today about the wondrous infrastructure marvel of dams damn girl damn girl that's right so dams are kind of a big deal dams provide water to communities irrigation for farmlands damn and and crops they provide hydroelectric power damn you really like saying that don't you i can't i'm a little immature there's no n on the end of that word so you're fine we don't have to edit this children can listen and you know what else dams do they can turn a barren desert into a thriving metropolis, just like that. Except I don't think it's really just like that. So, Adam, how much did Kristen pay you to come onto our podcast? <laughs> well, I'm happy to say that this is a really entertaining hobby, and I have yet to make a dollar. So, if you guys would pay me a dollar, you'd be the first. What kind of influencer are you? If you're not, are you getting like free samples of stuff? Anything? Oh, no, I just, I, free sample, uh, yeah, the people who build the hydroelectric turbines will send me a free turbine if I plug their brand. There you go. <laughs> just, uh, okay, for real, though, you do have, I think you have 102,000 followers on TikTok. Something like that, yeah. Does TikTok send you prizes yet? I haven't opted into any of that stuff. I just love the subject matter. This has been a, a fun hobby, finding a niche like this. And yeah. it's been kind of a fun adventure. I started this about five or six years ago on YouTube. Yeah. I upload just a handful of videos and then kind of forgot about it. I was in the process of building a, a company and that company took off and I just forgot about the YouTube channel, didn't have notifications turned on. And then I logged back in three or four years later and discovered that one of my videos was ranked number one for a particular search term related what? to a dam. 
Oh, oh my and I gosh. Had like 120,000 views and I had no idea. And so <laughs> when the pandemic came and I had some time on my hands, I downloaded TikTok and started creating content and it's been growing ever since. Yeah. Well, if you go visit the armchair engineer on TikTok, he covers a lot of different material, not just dams. We're going to focus on dams today. Damn. But he covers all <laughs> kinds of other things. <laughs> yeah. So uh, how do you, uh, you know, we fiddle with TikTok, but it sounds like you're all in if you've got that many followers. Uh, how much time do you spend on this? Oh my goodness. It really depends on what else is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, my, my day job is running a company and, and doing content creation. So if you see me posting a lot, that probably means I have some time on my hands. If you don't hear from me for a few weeks, that probably means that I'm working with a client. So we don't need to worry and depends. send the troops to check on you. You're just busy and having a life. <laughs> probably. Yes. But yes. I'll probably come back with some really great video. Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, and I gotta say, I mean, fellow influencers, uh, you now have fifty four. Yes. Oh, we have fifty four. Did you sign? You crazy? You just signed up for us. We got to release something now. I know we're gonna have to do something. We are. Uh, I'm just happy to be here. Thanks so much for inviting. Me. Yeah, yeah, thanks yeah. for agreeing to come on. So what we're gonna do, Adam? I understand you're the armchair engineer. This is something of great interest to you, and you've ta- you've invested a lot of time in learning about things that the rest of us don't know much about, and so you're gonna educate us. I just finished, and Kristen got about a third of the way into it and fell asleep, but I just finished a book that you've read cover to cover four or five times called Colossus. And it's written by Michael Hildzik. Oh, he's got it. He's got it with him. And we're going to talk about the Hoover Dam, and that's what that book is about. That's one thing we're going to talk about. And I want to start the discussion by, by lifting a quote from Colossus. Hildzik said, The Hoover Dam was born in the Jazz Age built in the machine age, and in every respect represented the modern age. It stands today as the perfect melding of form and function, a landmark of engineering, architecture, and muscular industry. Why is this a favorite topic of yours? (laughs) Well, if you've ever seen the Hoover Dam in person, it's hard not to be awe-inspired. But beyond just the edifice itself, I would challenge you to find a public works project out there that has lifted more people out of poverty mm-hmm. than Hoover Dam. Yes. Yes. Yeah. When you think back to the Steinbeck novels, The Grapes of Wrath, oh, God. migration <laughs> coming out of the Midwest. Yeah. I mean, that was a very real thing. A lot of people moving west, and just like in the book, not all of them were able to find work because there was only so much land in production. The development of the Lower Colorado River added more land into production during the time when we needed it the most, not just for employment, but also for food supply. It kept up with our population growth and our development as a nation when we needed it the most because that was right before World War II when we didn't have time to put a lot of infrastructure into our food supply and our our supply chain, we needed to go for the war effort. The dam was there to allow Southern California and parts of Nevada and Arizona to grow crops and keep people fed. It was an amazing success at just the right time. I want to start here. This whole topic, because you know, you were talking about the American West and their Southwest, and a lot of it was very arid back in the day. And some still people, is. <laughs> still is, some people had this crazy idea of this thing called the Imperial Valley. And hey, if we can start irrigating these sections and it can explode and we'll build cities in the desert, reminds me of an old Sam Kennison bit. I don't know if you're too young for Sam Kennison. He was the uh, stand-up comedian who screamed all the time. He had a crazy voice. Ah! And so and so he had this bit, and it was back like when there were famines going on in Africa. It was incredibly inappropriate and not politically correct. But he had this bit, and he's like, 
You know, see this? This is sand. This is sand. You know where sand is? It's in the desert. It's in the desert. Nothing grows there. And he's like leaning over doing it. He says, we have deserts too. We don't live there. Do you remember that bit? <laughs> I do remember that bit. I but do. the Hoover Dam turns this on its head and we started living there. So how did this all get started? Adam? Well, that's a great question because it's easy to look at dry, loose soil and call it sand and not recognize the differences mm. uh, in the different types of sand. For example, uh, good luck trying to grow a bunch of wheat on uh, an ocean beach. Mm-hmm. Right? right, that's the not the right kind of sand, you know. Right. Um, there's there's other types of sand that actually are amazing for farming. Uh, if you go to any place that used to be underwater whether it was an inland sea or an ancient lake bed, that tends to be very fertile ground in a just-add-water sort of way. And so it's a very common misunderstanding that the desert is inhospitable to to agriculture. It's actually some of the best farmland on planet Earth, and this has been known for quite some time. If you look at places, uh, say, in Pakistan and Iran, a lot of that climate, a lot of that soil is what we would consider just visually to be sand and desert, and yet people have been successfully cultivating the land on the banks of these rivers for thousands of years. And so when you see a desert, it it triggers a certain image we have of a lack of productivity when actually it's just the opposite. If you have the right conditions, if you bring in water in a controlled fashion, it can be some of the best growing conditions in the world. So this wasn't such a harebrained idea. Not at all. Not at all. The Imperial Valley of Southern California, for those who don't know, is a large area below sea level directly east of San Diego. So if you go out of San Diego, you go up and over the mountains, you drop down to about 200 feet below sea level. This area used to be known as Lake Cahuilla to the indigenous people. In fact, when the conquistadors, the Spanish conquistadors came in the 1500s, the Imperial Valley was underwater. And it shows up on their maps as a large body of water. By the time American expansion got there, it had shrunk down to almost nothing. It was just a puddle at the bottom of what they called the Salton Sink. Right. It was very, very acidic and you know, just not, not good for much. We now understand, geologically speaking, that the Colorado River has two choices of where it gets to flow. It can either flow south to the Sea of Cortez or it can flow north into that depression. And when it flows north, it fills up the valley until it spills back over the Sea of Cortez, and then it slowly evaporates over 200 years. That cycle has been going on for millennia. And as we trace indigenous history, we realize that people have been living in this dry lake bed forever, just following the shoreline as it came in, came out, came in, came out. When American expansion happened, it was empty. But in 1905, it almost filled back up. Through a, an amazing comedy of errors from a, a guy named Rockwood, who had the harebrained idea of subdividing the Imperial Valley, selling the plots on right. the promise that he would get water. And he uh-huh. actually pulled it off. He sold an enormous amount of land, dug a very crude canal from the Colorado River down to this depression, and almost immediately, crops started springing up. In the first few years, it was actually very successful. It worked extremely well, and he made a ton of money. The problem is his canal was not sustainable. He dug it with hand tools. It wasn't wide enough, wasn't deep enough, and the Colorado River water is very muddy. And so almost immediately, it started silting up, started getting choked with mud. And so they would dig it deeper. It would get choked with mud again. They would try to do a new course. They they couldn't keep up with it. And in a fit of frustration, they decided to make a brand new big open breach for this canal and it wouldn't close. 
the entire river redirected out of its path down this canal for two years, filling up the Salton Sink. And that's the story of how we have the Salton Sea today. Wow. I yeah, I did get to that part in Colossus. And oh, I was fascinated by their, oh, we have a problem. We'll just do this. And everything made it worse. It's like they couldn't with yeah. the, I didn't think about, I didn't know the Colorado had so much sediment and silt and yeah. And well, if you uh, if you look at a map, you can see the river kind of go. This is a podcast, otherwise I'd show it up on the map here. Um, it looks like it takes a left turn and goes south. But if you turn your map sideways, so the Colorado River and the Gila Rivers come together in this pass in the mountains, you can then see an alluvial fan, like oh, a delta, like like yeah. where the Nile River enters the Mediterranean Sea. It just becomes a fan. One side goes to the sea, the other side goes to Death Valley. Hmm. Oh, and wow. if you picture it that way, you realize, oh, this is... This whole thing is a delta, just one side dried out. Right. And so the Salton Sea is both a very unnatural thing and the most natural thing at all. If they had done nothing, it's likely that within sometime in the 20th century, it would have happened on its own anyway. Well, Adam, I understand that the Hoover Dam got its start in the Great Depression, but certainly we weren't building this just to create jobs. Like, why the need for the Hoover Dam? What's the reason for it? That's a great question. This actually predates the Depression by quite a bit. And jumping ahead in the story, it's a fun bit of political posturing that it gets associated with the New Deal. Hoover Dam was not a New Deal project. It wasn't at all. But FDR really needed the win. And so he, he tried to add it in afterwards. But really what it comes down to is to have a river be useful, you got to have consistency. You look at the rivers that we have out east of the Potomac, the Hudson, those are rivers that people have been able to sail up for thousands of years and certainly during colonial times were able to build cities around because they were consistent. They didn't jump their banks dramatically and they didn't dry up in the summer. The Colorado is maybe the most volatile river in North America in terms of its highs and its lows. Um, If you look back through indigenous history, you don't find major cities built along the Colorado. You do find civilization. You do find cities and pueblos and like like people have been occupying the Southwest for thousands of years. They never built large cities along the river simply because you couldn't do much with it. You couldn't mm-hmm. divert it. You couldn't sail it. If you tried to sail it, you might get stranded or you might get hit by a flash flood. It was very difficult to deal with. And Rockwood found that out when he did the Imperial Valley Project. It just didn't work. And so if you want to do anything with the Colorado River, you have to regulate it. You have to be able to knock down the highs and floods to be able to backfill the lows during the dry seasons. And that's the essence of why Hoover Dam exists, to take a river that has dramatic highs and lows and make it steady and consistent. Well, it sounds like a great idea, but What's fascinating to me is you don't just say, hey, let's go build a dam. I understand that this took years of negotiation between seven states. Can you give us some insight into that? Yeah. So if you look at pretty much any civilization in the world, their success is based on their proximity to water. If you have access to a port that gives you access to the high seas, navies, that's a whole nother, other subject. But river navigation and, and the use of irrigation from a river is super important. And on the map, the Colorado looks like it's the crown jewel of the Southwest. Um, there were dreams about having riverboat lines going all the way up into Utah. Like there was, oh, like, wow. there was all these fancy ideas of like, oh, th- this river is there. And then they tried it and discovered, no, you can't navigate it, you can't divert it, it's this unknown thing. To the point where there's many Indian tribes that were living up in the upper basin that never had contact with the lower because no one had ever navigated the entire thing. Oh, wow. And so um, it was always this idea of like, man, if only we could harness this 
it would unlock the potential of this region. It had been a dream for at least the mid-1800s, since the area got mapped by Europeans. And so when it came time to, to actually move forward with that, there was naturally a lot of political pressure to, to claim the water. Um, mm. <laughs> the problem with the Colorado when it comes to the water sources, all of it originates in the upper elevations, but the people that want to use it are down below meaning that the snow falls up in the Rockies, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but the place that they want to irrigate is down south. So naturally, the lower basin states are going to be worried that the upper basin states are going to take the water before it flows downhill. Ah, okay. Who would the lower basin states be that are affected That's here? That's a great question. So so there's seven states that touch the Colorado. They are from south to north, California, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Wyoming. Hmm. And so the lower basin consists of California, Nevada, and Arizona. Those are the ones that touch the river and it's kind of final sprint to the sea. And then the water originates in the mountain states like New Mexico, that's the smallest one, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming. And I understand there was a lot of disagreement and a lot of horse trading back and forth and jostling, and it got pretty contentious. It was very difficult to get all seven states on the same page to get this thing built. What were they fighting about? Well, you got to keep in mind, this is in a different era of American government. Um, They say that in terms of our federal system, state versus federal, the federal government's budget didn't surpass the state's cumulative budget until the Roosevelt administration. Ah. And so this is during an era when the federal government really didn't have a lot of leverage to negotiate this kind of thing. It really was up to the states to just kind of figure it out. And that had a lot of economic advantages. It also had a lot of negative environmental consequences. You see, especially in the Great Lakes region, how certain states wreaked havoc without concern about what happened downstream. A fascinating example of that is the Chicago Ship and Sanitary Canal, where Chicago decided instead of cleaning our sewage, let's just dump it in the Mississippi and let St. Louis handle it. That's an interstate interstate commerce thing that would not be allowed today. The federal government would step in. But back then, it was like, hey, you do you. Have fun. And so (laughs) as it was time to lay claim to all this water, California uh, operated with the idea that if we get there first, no one will be able to take it away from us. And so as they started developing the Imperial Valley, they did so without any legal claim to the water. Mm. But then as World War I comes and goes, upper basin states are saying, well, what if we want that water? And uh, there was talk about federal expenditures to build a dam. And the upper basin states said, hey, that dam doesn't benefit us. We don't think you should spend money on that. You know, what about us? You know, and that tension is what led to the need for a written agreement. It's now called the Colorado River Compact that basically says, here's how much water is there. And here's how we're going to divide it seven ways. And we're not going to go that deep on this podcast, but I want to tell the listeners, go to the TikTok. If you have an account, don't have an account, sign up for it. And you get into... YouTube or Instagram. Or YouTube or Instagram, right. You can go to any of those. But I saw it on TikTok, Adam, and you went into the Colorado River Compact itself and how long it goes for and kind of the way they sewed it together. And it seems to go into perpetuity. And I think you said it says something to the effect of it will always be in effect unless all seven states agree to rescind it. And then there's language in there that says, but it's still going to be in effect. So fascinating, fascinating discussion. It's a messy document, but the most important detail about the Colorado River Compact is that it assumes a quantity of water in the river that turned out to be fictional. Oh, really? 
Yes, that's the crux of this whole thing. So they did a 10-year survey uh -huh. from about 1910 to 1920 where they did back-of-the-envelope measurements of the flow in the river and then projected that out and said, we think there's somewhere around between 16 to 20 million cubic feet per year in this river. And they were off by a lot. The 100-year average is closer to 13 or 14 million acre feet. And the, the compact promises 16 and a half without accounting for seepage, leakage, or any of the pirated or unofficial draws on the river. So the document basically guarantees a shortage for the long term. Well, what I don't understand is, that I think where you're headed with this, Adam, is the states agreed to divide up the water, like each state would get its allotment. And California basically wanted it all, and they had to work it out. How do you, like, how do you, do you, Go out there with a measuring cup and say, okay, California, here's yours and here's yours, Utah. Like, how do they do that? Do you know? Well, a river survey is surprisingly crude, and yet it's turned out to be reasonably accurate, at least within a standard deviation. You figure out the prism of the river, like a cross-section of it. You go out there with a rod and figure out how deep it is, and then measure how fast it's going past, and you just do the math and figure out how many cubic feet per second are going past. That's probably math how every above our heads. I'm thinking. Well, it's how every stream gauge in North America works. You can go onto the USGS website and you can see cubic feet per second flows on practically every river and stream in North America. And that's just how it's always been. And that methodology has held up. What hasn't held up is the water coming out. There really hasn't been anyone whose official job it is to measure how much water is being taken. It's been on the honor system. Mm, and some users have dramatically overdrawn. Uh -huh. And just because nobody noticed, it became part of the squatter's rights claim. And that's part of what we're dealing with right now. Fascinating. But I understand that it wasn't all about water. I think at least California also wanted the power, the electric Absolutely. power that was going to come from the dam. Absolutely. And that flew in the face of the conservative ideals of the dam's namesake, Herbert Hoover. He was very much of the opinion, and this was actually a pretty large popular opinion at the time, that the government should not be involved in power generation. It should be a private matter. And at the time, that's really how it was. Your local utility, typically within 10 miles of your town, would have a generating station just on the outskirts, and that's how you got your power. It was notoriously unreliable, right? It would flicker on and off, and every power station might have slightly different voltage or slightly different phase and all that. Mm -hmm. And that really wasn't until the New Deal and Roosevelt's efforts that standardized power generation in America because all the grids have to be on the same wavelength, figuratively and literally, in order to interoperate. And that's been one of the better results of that whole piece of legislation. This episode of Infrastructure Junkies is proudly brought to you by my company, Blackbird Right-of-Way. We specialize in relocation assistance services nationwide. From one parcel to 100, let Blackbird handle your relocation challenges. You can find out more about us at our website. It's blackbirdrow.com. That's blackbirdrow.com. So how does a dam, if you can just give us the thumbnail, how does a dam create electricity? Yeah, so with the exception of photovoltaic solar cells, all electricity is generated by something rotating. 
mm-hmm. in some form or another. Like just imagine a wheel or an axle on a bicycle. Something has to turn in order to make power because that's how a generator works. You have a big magnet called a stator wrapped around with copper coils. And as that thing spins, it pushes electricity through the wires. And so how you spin that turbine is up to you. You could burn coal to make a furnace. You could split the atom to make a furnace. You know, basically anything that's hot, you know, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. generate power with. Hydropower skips the whole burning thing and the whole pollution, the environment thing, and just uses the kinetic energy of falling water. So if you have a dam, that means you have high water on one side and low water on the other. The pressure difference between that, those can turn a generator. Just imagine a big propeller inside of a pipe. As the water goes through the pipe, we call it a penstock, it rotates the propeller, we call that the turbine or turbine, and then that turbine turns the generator. It's amazing. It's the cleanest energy we've thought, the cleanest and most consistent energy source we've invented thus far, with the possible exception of large-scale nuclear, which we're still working on. Right. All right. So let's get to the nitty-gritty here. Eventually, the seven states were able to agree on how to divide Uh, up water and who's getting the the electricity. Herbert Hoover twisted some arms. I would say that at least one of the states, maybe two, signed under protest. The state of Arizona actually held out until the issue was forced. Uh, They actually tried to stop the construction of a second dam. They sent their National Guard on horseback with rifles to try and stop the survey team from building Parker Dam. And that's what forced the issue, sent it up to the Supreme Court. They finalized some of the right-of-way issues, some of the details, and then Arizona signed... I think it was sometime in the 40s. So they finally all get on the same page. Let's talk about the construction. I mean, this if you look at a picture of the Hoover Dam, and I really got into it reading the book, and you, that's why the book is called Colossus. This thing is enormous. Yeah, Adam's got a picture of it behind him on the Jeez. video. How did they do that? Oh, it's really an incredible story. In the case of any dam, the very first thing you have to do is get the water out of the site. Well, how they do that? People, it's, not, it's not like a bridge where you just kind of go over it or you sink a couple piers in the water. You actually have to remove the river from the site, which in the case of the Colorado meant either moving a creek or moving the fifth largest river in North America. Like it was an enormous amount of water. So what they did is they drilled four 50-foot diameter tunnels through solid rock on either side, well, about half a mile long, four tunnels and then dropped a bunch of gravel into the river to push the water into those tunnels and out of the dam site. Once they had done that, they dug out all of the stream bed and all that gravel down another 100 feet. So you ended up with a hole that was deeper than the original canyon, and they were able to lay the foundations 100 feet below the original water line. And I understand that this took, like, at any given time, like 5,000 workers at a time. And this is in the early 1930s. And yeah. there there were people, because we were in the Depression, there were people showing up on the site, uninvited and unannounced, moving their families to live in the middle of the desert with no shelter, is how it got started. Oh, it was incredible. As soon as word got out that there was the possibility that there might be a dam project, people started moving their sight unseen with no plan no job, no shelter, and just started camping out on the edge of the Colorado River in shanties, tents, and in some cases, even vehicles. Right. And they lived there for over a year before the project was even officially started. It's actually a great human tragedy and something we just don't see anymore, these tent cities of unemployed people popping up, waiting for work. That, that, that That's called San Francisco. 
<laughs> Sorry, I got a little East Coast snobbery in me a little bit here. A little bit, a little bit. Sorry, I, cu- I cut you, you off. No, it's really a, an incredible story and not something that we've really seen since then in terms of people showing up specifically to work. Mm-hmm. And yeah. unfortunately, the downside of all that is they endured some brutal working conditions, some genuinely unsafe working conditions because they were that desperate for work. The drilling of those tunnels didn't have to be as as tough as it was. They actually used diesel-powered steam shovels in these half-mile-long tunnels. And I don't know if you've ever gotten stuck in a parking garage behind an idling F-150. That's bad enough. Now imagine being underground for 10 hours a day, surrounded by eight or nine heavy machines just belching out diesel fumes. There were an enormous number of men who died of carbon monoxide poisoning but were never actually acknowledged of having received a workplace injury and their families unfortunately received nothing once they passed away. And tell the listeners why that happened. Oh, it's quite terrible. So believe it or not, electric equipment existed back then, right? but they wanted to save some money. And so they didn't go with the new electric equipment. They went with the diesel powered ones. And we didn't have OSHA back then. We didn't have as good a medical care back then. And they just used the broad term pneumonia for anything respiratory. Right. So oh. these guys came stumbling out of the tunnel with blurred vision and their heads are spinning, or maybe they just collapse over. They bring them out to the surface. They're still breathing, but their heart stops beating once they're up top. And at that point, they said they didn't die on the job. Right. No compensation. Right. Things are so different now. And thank goodness for OSHA. I mean, you know, as business owners, yeah. it's kind of a pain sometimes to deal with. But we did an episode about the Brooklyn Bridge and the conditions and, yep. and with the caissons and people and, and coming up yes. with the bins and horrific, yeah. horrific conditions. This That's just very reminiscent of that to me. I give a lot more credit to the Roblings and what they did mm-hmm. with the Brooklyn Bridge and the caissons because they genuinely didn't know. Like, right. they didn't know about nitrogen in the blood. Like this was, mm-hmm. And the chief designer himself suffered from the disease. And right. Complaint. In the case of Hoover Dam, they knew what they were doing, and oh. that wasn't right. They were trying to come in on time and under budget, which they were successful at, but with an enormous human cost. Well, that's what my clients always want, on time and under budget, but I don't think they're going to kill me over it these days. No, but let's clarify this. Let's emphasize what was going on. There was a company, I think it was called like the Big Six or something like that, which is a... Six companies. Six companies. It was a conglomerate of six previous companies, some of which you've heard of, like Bechtel and Kaiser. Right, right. But it was a conglomeration of other companies, and they didn't want any of these workers to be diagnosed with carbon monoxide poisoning on the job because then they would have to pay workers comp. Correct. Correct. So that's why they were saying, no, this is respiratory failure. This is heart failure. It's pneumonia. Unless you left your corpse in the canyon, you weren't going to get workman's comp. And so you had to hope that your husband's heart stopped in the tunnel and they didn't get him outside. Because, yeah, as soon as you were outside, they said, oh, you didn't die on the job. You died from a pre-existing condition, pneumonia. And the family would get nothing. It was really tragic. How many people died? Do you know? Estimate a lot. Um, well, that's tricky. I mean, you even go to the Bureau of Reclamation now and look at the official death count. It's quite a bit lower. More more people died on uh, digging the tunnels than the whole rest of the construction combined. Probably times two or three. Mm. We don't actually know how many. Right. Because they oh. purposely <laughs> they're not didn't tracking allow it. <laughs> much of the paper. We don't have a paper trail. Yeah. yeah. So we have the anecdotes from the families, and that was documented in the 1950s, but we don't have a firm count, but it was in the hundreds. But Adam, you, you said digging the tunnels, and they're, they, I think they were a half mile long. Weren't they actually like blasting through bedrock 
and they oh, yeah. blast oh, yeah. out about six feet at a time. The trucks would roll in, pull the rocks out, and they'd yeah. put more dynamite in there. And So what they did is they got two flatbed trucks and drove them side by side and then built a scaffolding on the back that was four stories tall, just a normal, like a painter's scaffolding, and stack it three high with men with diamond-tipped drill bits. Mm-hmm. And they would back this whole thing. They called it a jumbo. They would back the whole thing up to the rock wall, and then everyone would drill a hole about 36 inches deep and about... 48 inches or so on center. They just drill those holes, pack them full of dynamite, pull everybody out, boom. Then they send in the steam shovels to remove the rubble and then repeat. They just do that over and over and over again and blast out probably about five to 10 feet of rock at a time because it was solid, still is, solid basalt. They just did that over and over and over again, gradually until they emerge out the other side. Wow. That's amazing. And that wasn't even actually building the dam that was for the tunnels to divert the river correct although it was the largest part of the process the dam went up relatively quickly Mm -hmm. um, after the tunnels were done the tunnels were at least half of the actual construction time what happened to the tunnels after they were done did they are they still there they're still there they are still there and still an active part of the dam really four of them are in some form or another part of the drainage system out of the dam two of them the inner tunnels are part of a a bypass network if they ever need to drain the powerhouse and dewater that section of the dam the outer tunnels are the lower section of the emergency spillways can you see them like if you're out if you go there can you really oh yeah if you go to the top of the dam there's Uh a section where there's a concrete channel next to a little bridge and you see the tunnel take a 45 degree angle just straight down and it it looks like the gateway to the abyss right it goes down a 45 degree angle 500 feet down till it intersects with the original tunnel then it flattens out and goes out to the river damn damn girl (laughs) well you said that the dam itself actually went up fairly oh he's uh showing us a picture we'll have to put this video on our tiktok for all of our followers pretty amazing oh 54 of them if you don't mind yeah this is it right here the water over overflows there and goes into that portal where it goes down a 45 degree angle and then it intersects with the main tunnel probably somewhere about here and then exits right there okay wow Wow. We'll have to put that on our TikTok. We will. Those tunnels in that form have only been used twice in the history of the dam. Once as a test and once in an actual flood in 1983. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, Now, constructing the dam itself, it's made of concrete? It's made of mass concrete, unreinforced concrete. There's no steel or anything. It was done in lifts of about one foot where they would dump a bucket of concrete of, I think, about 10 cubic yards. Mm -hmm. And when it landed, it would raise it about two inches. And they would just do that over and over and over again. They would do it in alternating sections so one block could dry while the other one was being poured, and they would just gradually stair-step up over and over and over again. And they built a concrete plant either on the site or near the site, I think. It was just a tremendous Uh, amount of material. They built two concrete plants. One was located, they're both underwater now. One was located out here, and another one was located over here, just on the side of the canyon next to the dam. And they've manufactured all that concrete on site because there's no time to transport it, Mm -hmm. right? As soon as you do the mix, it starts to set up. And so they had to mix the concrete as close to the dam site as possible. Sorry. (laughs) They're not, there's, yeah, go ahead. They had to mix the concrete as close as possible and get it poured as quickly as possible because in the dry, hot air, it would set much quicker than in, in most other places in North America. So they, from the concrete mixing plant to its placement, they had to have it down to like 20 minutes or so. Yeah, there's and no the big final leg, concrete trucks with the spinning, like you, you make no. it, you lay it, you're done. 
20 no, minutes? So it would come out of the concrete processing plant and go into the back of a specially made train car. That train car would shuttle it to the ed- the very edge of the cliff, top of the cliff. At that point, it would transfer to a bucket on an aerial tramway. Hmm. So imagine like a giant ski lift that would swing this thing over the canyon, and then a second cableway would lower it straight down to where the workers were waiting. What were waiting, they would hit a latch, the bottom would fall out of the bucket like that, concrete yeah. would drop out. And then it would return for another load. And they would do that continuously, 24 hours a day for two and a half years. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That'll give you that'll give you some idea of the size. And the it's purpose, massive. I guess in, in most fundamental layman's terms, Adam, the purpose of this was to stop the flow of the river in its natural state, back it up, and create a massive reservoir, which I guess they then take the water from. Is that a correct yeah, summary. Yeah, I mean, when you don't have the dam, then whatever water comes from upstream is what you have to deal with downstream, mm-hmm. right? It just, it runs down, and if there's a big flood that comes down from up in the mountains, eventually it hits you downstream. If there's a shortage upstream, eventually you have a shortage downstream. What a dam does is it gives you margin. Think of it like a savings account. Let's say you have a paycheck every two weeks, but you have bills every day of the week right? If you could only write checks to pay your bills on the day you got paid, that would be kind of stressful. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. why you have a checking account or in some cases a savings account. So you have a buffer so that as your money comes in, it replenishes, but you can draw from it when you need it. The dam principle is the same thing. You now have a a vast reservoir of water to draw from during the lean times, and then it gets replenished during the flood season. So who makes, I'm sorry, who who makes the decision like, okay, we better adjust what's happening with the flow. Who gets to decide that? At all dams or on this dam in particular? This one. (laughs) This one. So it's a complicated arrangement where all the different water operators are in communication with each other about what's coming downstream. Uh And what they're sending downstream is based on what the law says they have to send downstream. So unfortunately, for the last 20 or so years, despite the drought, they've been sending down the same amount of water as if it was a banner year. Oh. Yeah. Uh And so the folks in the Imperial Valley at the All-American Canal are expecting to send between 12 and 15 cubic feet per second down. They're expecting X number of million acre feet. Well, the dams upstream are going to deliver that to them month after month, month after month. What's happening now is the savings account of Lake Mead is getting pretty low. And so now they're finally adjusting how much water they send down send downstream before the savings account runs out. Well, and that that could probably be the fodder for an entirely different podcast. But the point I want to get back to here is you're going to create this enormous reservoir where there wasn't one. Okay, so there was property there that's going to Correct. be underwater. And I pulled a couple of figures about this because it's fascinating. This reservoir that they created. They had to acquire property for the reservoir, right? That's what we're here for. The reservoir would inundate 115 miles of the valley, 247 square miles when filled. It was the largest man-made body of water in the world at the time, I think. 12,000... Very recently. It still is the largest... Until very recently, it was the largest in the world, and it still is the largest in North America by a pretty wide margin. 12,600 acres of farmland had to be acquired by eminent domain or otherwise, but only 300... Which is a relatively small number. It is. That's fascinating. It sounds like a lot. Yeah. It would cost you a gazillion dollars today. Only 300... Compared to the size of the... Yeah, compared to the size of the reservoir, that's 
that's nothing. Right. Only 375 people were affected. I guess that means displaced when they acquired the property. And to give you comparison, 158,000 acres which were affected were already under government ownership or control. So just this massive reservoir. And is that Lake Mead, what we call Lake Mead today? That is Lake Mead. This was a vastly unpopulated area for its time. I mean, it's hard to imagine that now with the city of Las Vegas being right next to it. But during the time of Western expansion, a lot of map makers just kind of left this part of the country out. They just labeled it the arid lands. Hmm. Don't go there because there's not a lot to <laughs> We have deserts too. To yeah, exactly. And so there weren't a lot of people out there. I mean, there were some, and I don't want to minimize, especially the people that have been there for thousands of years. But in terms of large population centers, there really weren't with this dam or most of the other dams on the lower Colorado. One more fun fact of the construction, and I understand that the first person who died on the job site, his name was Gregory Tierney, the last person to die on the construction site was his son, Patrick, who died 14 years to the day later. To the day? Falling off of an intake tower. Falling off of an intake tower. I... That's not the way I would choose to go. My no. goodness, to the day. It was quick. It was yeah, quick. there you go. <laughs> right. It sure was. Yeah. No, it's it, it's a very morbid little factoid, but it's absolutely true. There were generations of men who worked on this project because the whole thing almost was a decade. You know, mm-hmm. there's different phases of construction. But yeah, the first and last, the bookends of the project, the deaths were father and son. Wow. That's crazy. So what's the status of Lake Mead now? So, like I said earlier, the Colorado Compact guarantees water that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. That was fine through the middle part of the 20th century because most of the states weren't drawing their allotment. Right. Arizona was not, like, Arizona was entitled to this much. They were only drawing a quarter of that. Nevada was drawing hardly any, although their percentage is the smallest. And the upper basin states weren't either. And so California was free to take all this water, and no one noticed that it was over-allocated. So all through the 1950s, 60s, you get to like the late 60s, and there was a big drought. On the order of the drought we're experiencing now, maybe not quite as long, but there was a similar big dip in the flow of the river, and the lake fell quite low, but then came back up when the drought ended. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, they experienced an enormous series of storms that came through, and all the lakes on the Colorado went brimful. After that time, from the 1980s forward, every state is using their allocation to 100%, and the water level, or sorry, the flow in the Colorado dropped back down to historic levels, meaning less than the Colorado Compact calls for. Mm. So the savings account of Lake Mead has been slowly being drawn down since about 1983, 1985. Mm -hmm. Um, It came up a little bit in 2001, but the last 20 years in particular has just been dropping, dropping, dropping until now it's at around 20, 25% of capacity. Wow. It's like hitting the lottery in 1983 and burning through it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like winning the lottery and then taking out a big mortgage that you can't afford just assuming, hey, I'll win the lottery again in a few years. (laughs) Well, is there any... (laughs) any hope in sight? I mean, is this going to just, are we doomed here? I mean, I know you can't predict the future, and I know, but with climate issues? Because, well, climate is very difficult to predict. There's a lot of reasons to think that the global climate change we're seeing is manifesting as higher heat and less precipitation in this one area, but we don't know that for sure. This year is a good evidence of that. We've just had 
enormous snowpack and enormous atmospheric rivers. So we really can't count on either one. What we do need to look at is the realistic numbers and just Mm -hmm. assume that they're going to go down and not up, especially as climate issues exasperate things like power generation and our need for clean energy. And so going forward, in some ways, this problem is going to solve itself because one day the water just won't be there. (laughs) Some farmers are going to turn on the tap and it's just going to be dry. I actually have a lot of hope for this issue because I know how much more we could do in terms of conservation with the irrigation that's going on. Um, There are cities like Las Vegas that have invested billions of dollars into water recycle and reuse. Most cities haven't done that. Los Angeles hasn't done that. Los Angeles is a major municipal draw on the river. They have not gone as far as they can go in water savings. You go to the agricultural use of the river, a lot of those places are still using flood irrigation, something that is not appropriate for that climate. (laughs) Hasn't been for 100 Mm. years, but they haven't needed to upgrade because they have this guaranteed supply of water. That guarantee should probably go away and should probably be tied to their efforts to save water. I think that would be a good incentive to move forward. I think if we all... If each user of the water was committed to conservation, I really think that there is enough water to go around. It's difficult to predict. I just go down to the Imperial Valley and I see how much flood irrigation is happening. I go, "Mm, we can do better here. Is anything in the works for that? For you do your part on the conservation, you get more water. Is there anything? No, there's nothing there. Currently, the Bureau of Reclamation is proposing a two and a quarter million acre feet reduction across the board for the lower basin. There's nothing tied to future incentives or how it's divvied out. It's just an across-the-board cut, which I think people are going to find very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Um, What I would personally like to see is a revamp of the original compact that ties everything to a rolling average, like a 10-year snapshot looking back where the numbers are, instead of being fixed quantities, are based on percentages of a rolling average. I would like to start there. And then what I'd like to do is guarantee 50% of the water and say the other 50% is tied to benchmark incentives. So, okay, Imperial Valley, if you want to lock up your water, half of it's guaranteed. The other half is not unless you hit these benchmarks. If you do hit these benchmarks, then you're guaranteed the water. If not, it goes to whoever the next person is that fulfilled their obligation. I would like to create incentives to see new technology implemented. There's been so much cool stuff that's happened in agriculture in the last 50, 100 years. It's not been applied evenly across the board. And if we were to invest in the technology side, we'd be able to see the water we do have go a lot further. Oh, armchair engineer for president. Are you running for public office? You have some great <laughs> plans. My goodness. I'm with you. Uh, I'm so with I, you. I got a little infrastructure uh, anecdote here. So I grew up in the mountains of central Washington mm-hmm. in a place that has six feet of snow on the ground at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. When I was a child, we had restrictions on our water use and were not allowed to run sprinklers in our yard because the farms downstream in the Yakima Valley owned our water rights. Oh. It was very odd to be in such a wet climate and not have access to our water. Mm. And so our city was constantly facing a water shortage. This small town, about 2,000 people, had a a water intake on this mountain stream that went through a pipeline that paralleled the railroad grade before it came into town. In 19... Actually, no, I think it was like 2005, they replaced that water main. This 100-year-old water main that was the old style where they have the wooden slats wrapped in baling wire, Mm -hmm. they replaced that with a modern concrete pipe over its five-mile length. And overnight, the town's water supply issues went away. Hmm. 
Overnight. They didn't change the law. They didn't change the water. Like, but overnight, their draw got so they didn't realize how leaky that pipe was. Wow. It was so bad that all of the trees along that right of way died the next year. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There was an entire forest that was alive because of the leaky pipe. <laughs> Oh my goodness. And it was this amazing visual example of like, oh, we have a lot of waste in this system. We could be going a lot further. Rather than suing the farmers saying, give us our water back, maybe we should take care of our own stuff and try and use what we have more effectively. And Las Vegas, the city of Las Vegas is an excellent pilot example of that. If the other major cities in the West embraced the things that Las Vegas has done, we wouldn't be in this kind of problem. Wow. That's fascinating. That gives us some hope. I keep reading about Lake Mead. It keeps popping up on my Google feed, probably because I keep reading about it. And it just seems so depressing. There's no way out of this. But you're making it sound like maybe there is a solution. Maybe we don't have to all die in a fiery mass. Oh, yeah. We're going to figure this out. We have before. Technology is the answer here. And there's people who say we need to close down cities and get rid of farms and we shouldn't live in the desert. I say that's nonsense. We can do this. We have the capacity to do this. The dam is actually a big part of how we're going to solve this in the future because we have all this storage capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Those huge atmospheric rivers hitting California right now, if it wasn't for the dams, all that water would be in San Francisco Bay right now. Wow. It'd be a one-off thing. But because we have that infrastructure, because we have these dams all over the Sierra Nevada, we're able to store it and use it for the, the coming season if the drought continues. Okay. I saw something on your TikTok, and I want to know more about it. What is Deadpool? And I don't think it's a superhero wow. movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. So the dam is 728 feet tall. Okay. Of that 728 feet tall, they don't have a drain at the very bottom. Like imagine your bathtub. Your bathtub drain is like of the lowest point in your bathtub. Mm-hmm. On the dam, the lowest drain is about a third of the way up. So imagine if your bathtub had its lowest drain only a third of the way up, you'd never be able to drain your bathtub, uh-huh. right? There'd yeah. always be water there. Yeah, That is what Deadpool is. Deadpool is when the reservoir drops to the level of the lowest outlet, and then it stops because it can't go any further. For whatever reason in America, they don't. we don't tend to build dams with drains at the very bottom. So in the case of Lake Mead, they can't drain it all the way. It'll okay. To a point where... That's as far as it goes, and the lake will stabilize at that level. It's never going to just dry up all the way. I mean, I guess no, it could for, evaporate, for to, but it's not going to be drained all the way. Well, we know what the evaporation rate is, uh-huh. and it's not as large as the inflow coming in. Okay. Adam, let's talk about that real quick. I ran across these stats of the evaporation rate on Lake Mead, yeah. and it blew my mind. Do you know it off mm-hmm. the top of your head? I don't know it off the top of my head for Lake Mead specifically, but I know Lake Mead and Lake Powell together, it's something like a million acre feet a year. Yeah, It's something significant, like enough to water a city. <laughs> it's well, a lot of water. But they cited, I think it was in Colossus, is that just natural evapor- evaporation, it, it will lose six-tenths of an inch a day just by natural evaporation. Yeah, 25,000 right. gallons a second. What? Yeah, that's where, that's, huge. that's not damn. even, damn, girl, <laughs> that's not even overusing it. That's not even overusing it. And that's the double-edged sword of surface reservoirs behind dams. Because if the dam wasn't there and the reservoir wasn't there, that loss would also not be there and there'd be more water in the river. The problem is, without the dam, you don't have an easy way to use the water. Mm, So it's a bit of a catch-22. The one silver lining of the lake being this low, the evaporation is based on surface area. As the lake drops, the surface area gets a lot smaller, so there's less evaporation now than there is when the lake is high. 
fascinating. I that, would have never considered that. Now, yeah, that, that's a silver lining that doesn't actually make it better right. because we need the water regardless. But right. right now, there's a lot of conversations about the lake levels, especially on Lake Powell, which is the next reservoir upstream of, above the Grand Canyon. Lake Powell is a destination for, for all kinds of boaters. Yeah. And so they're very distraught at how low it is. And they get really excited when it raises up a few feet. They get excited about what's coming next. And I hate to break it to them. That's actually not a good sign because these lakes exist in valleys. You're holding a margarita glass. What's happening it's right happy now? Hour. Glass because it's wide at the top and narrow at the bottom. Right. So if I was to fill this with shot glasses one at a time, it would take one or two shot glasses to fill it halfway. And then it would take eight to 10 shot glasses to fill it to the top. Ah. Meaning that the cubic volume of this glass, most of it's in the very top. Ah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is the optical illusion, or maybe the perception illusion, of these reservoirs. Lake Mead lost half of its volume in the early 2000s, and nobody noticed because it only dropped about 20 feet. Oh, mm. my gosh. Okay. It dropped 20 feet. That's half the volume. Then it dropped another 100 feet, and it was the same volume as the first half. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Wow. So right now, a relatively small amount of inflow will cause it to raise a lot. And everyone gets excited thinking, oh, just raise 50 feet. We can get the next 50 feet. No, the next 50 feet is eight times as much water because it's, the reservoir spreads out. Wow. Well, kind of along those lines, I keep hearing news stories about, you know, there's been all kinds of rains and flood and snowpack and all this stuff, and people are rejoicing out west. Is the drought over? Are we saved? Or for the reason you just cited, are we all screwed? It's, It's difficult to exactly narrow down because, believe it or not, there is not a scientific, scientifically clinical definition of what's a drought and what's not. A drought is really just any sustained less water than you are expecting. So if you're expecting too much, the threshold for drought is pretty easy. I like to point out that it took 20 years for us to get into this jam. It's probably going to take 20 years for us to get out. One year of above average rainfall and snowpack does not end a drought. It does ease the drought, but we should not stop our plans for conservation and changes to the water use policy. We need to act as if we still have less water coming in because even if we had this kind of snowpack five years in a row, like it would take at least that long to fill the reservoirs back up. And so, no, I, I would say it's too early to declare victory over the drought. This does buy us some time. Wow. Let me ask you a question. So this, we talked a little bit about the Brooklyn Bridge and I always think like what just a marvel and just an example of human humans being amazing (laughs) blows my mind how that happened same is true of the hoover dam i cannot believe that people made that happen and so my question to you is could the hoover dam be built again today that's a great question could it absolutely will it in north america probably not the era of big dam building in north america is done not because of construction constraints but because of human constraints Ah. we don't have any big canyons that are devoid of people anymore to dam up. The number of suitable dam sites has shrunk. And then of those, most of them have vacation homes and towns and resorts in them. Mm. And so that makes it a right-of-way nightmare <laughs> right? <laughs> to try and construct. There's only a handful of sites left that I would say are even, even feasible. And just the public is not behind dam building that they like they were in the 30s and 40s. Okay. Um, 
it, it, believe it or not, this used to be very much a progressive cause. If you considered yourself a progressive, you were behind dam building. If you were considered yourself conservative, you didn't like the government spending money on dams. Fun little factoid, who remembers the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? Oh, yeah. Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Do you remember what the inciting incident was? No, I don't. Why he was arguing Congress? I don't remember. They were going to build a dam and flood his childhood Boy Scout farm. I totally forgot uh, that. That's going that, deep, that's Adam. The whole inciting incident of that movie is they were going to flood his childhood camping spot, this place that he loved up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and he just couldn't have that, so he took a stand on the floor of Congress. Well, this has been fascinating. Adam Ratliff, the armchair engineer, thank you so much for agreeing to come on to our podcast. We like having a celebrity, even though you're not getting paid for it yet, but that's coming, Adam. You just keep doing what you're doing. You keep doing you. This was a damn good episode. Damn right. <laughs>